0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Who is your favorite saint? Who is the saint that, when you hear their story or think of them or pray to or with them, helps you draw closer to Jesus? I used to use who is your favorite saint as an icebreaker question with vestries. I always, when I meet with a vestry, I always do a round, you know, getting to know your name and something about you and favorite Bible story, favorite book. For a while, I did use favorite saints sometimes, but I've come to realize that there are many people who come into the Episcopal Church from Protestant traditions where they honestly don't know any saints and they end up just kind of saying, St. John, because I go to St. John's (laughs) or something like that. And though I will say, I would say that based on those experiences, St. Francis is far and away the favorite saint of Episcopalians. We like our pets. But saints are a way for us to understand and draw closer to God in our faith. Even though if we knew more about them, we might find it concerning. Because there are a lot of really wild saints out there. St. Simeon Stylites spent 47 years living on top of a very tall pillar because of his faith. St. Teresa of Avila, who had these wild visions of encountering the divine with curiously sexual overtones. St. Catherine of Siena whipped herself three times a day. Lots of saints had self-harm behaviors— like Padre Pio in the 20th century, who had bleeding stigmata for 50 years. All things that today we would pathologize. You know, even Julian of Norwich, whose Revelations of Divine Love is this incredibly beautiful text about the visions she had and the voices she heard while extremely ill. You know, she then became a recluse who lived in a walled enclosure, never to return to the outside world. And yet the church in our history has understood so many of the symptoms that we would now treat with medication or confinement or therapy as avenues to divine revelation. Sometimes we were able, sometimes, to recognize spiritual gifts in people who just didn't fit in who weren't like everybody else, and who seemed to relate to the world and God on just a different plane. Sometimes the church treated such people horribly, but sometimes, sometimes we let them be who they were and recognized that in the ways they were different, they could help us draw closer to God. And that sense of people who don't fit in with the world as it is as in fitting in with God's world, is reflected in the Beatitudes today, where everything's upside down. You know, in our world, the poor are most certainly not blessed, and yet in God's kingdom, they are. The hungry, those who mourn, those who are hated, you know, rejoice. And Luke's Beatitudes make clear that the converse is true as well. Look out if you're rich, or full, or laughing, or well-respected. You may have success in the eyes of this world, but that success does not translate to God's eyes. And that might give us a moment of pause as we come to baptize and confirm new Christians today. (laughs) Look what you're getting into. (laughs) We talk about baptism usually as the entrance to the church to a life of faith and relationship with Jesus. And it is that, but you're not just entering the church, you're becoming saints today. You're entering the communion of saints. So welcome to this upside down world where holiness is not found in the same places as earthly success. And where you have now acquired siblings in Christ, not just in this congregation and not just in the church all around the world today, But you have acquired siblings of Christ throughout time. We are brothers and sisters and siblings with every Christian who has lived since those people were listening to Jesus say, Blessed are you who are poor. Our siblings, some of them have led holy lives and been martyred or been visionaries, built cathedrals, preached love. And some siblings of Christ have oppressed people have been flagrant sinners and people of harm. But Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus is not just for the saints or the saintly among us. To be a saint is to be someone who is close to God, but we don't call people saints to help God identify who they are. We call people saints because we need to know who they are because we need to understand their stories and point to their stories as things that will be helpful for us. The Reverend Dr. Carter Hayward, one of the Philadelphia Eleven, the first women ordained in the Episcopal Church in 1974 when it was still against canon law to do so, wrote a book called The Erotic as Power and the Love of God. And in it she wrote, Heroes show us who we are not. Helpers show us who we are. As individual supermen and wonder women, heroes diminish our sense of relational or shared power. Helpers call forth into our power in relation and strengthen our senses of ourselves. How can the saints be helpers? People who expose and encourage our nascent holiness, rather than heroes who create distance between the official, recognized holiness of the saints with a big S and us poor mortals. For me, part of that is remembering that none of the formal saints were saints while they were alive. They were just followers of Jesus, like us. And like so many holy people who work so quietly and whose names are not known, and who do not get recognized with the big capital S saint. I think of healthcare workers during the pandemic. That was holy work, and all too often the holy work of martyrdom and self-sacrifice. And we do not collectively know all of their names, and yet, here is the ministry and the work of the loving hands of God. And not just healthcare workers during the pandemic, of course. People at grocery stores and Amazon warehouses and first responders. I sing a song of the saints of God. The day after my ordination as a priest, when I celebrated the Eucharist at the main service at my parish in California, we were using Eucharistic Prayer B, which is, we're using today as well in a very perfect merging of sermon and liturgical planning. And... Eucharistic prayer B has the following line towards the end of it. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ and bring us to that heavenly country where, with all your saints, we may enter the everlasting heritage of your sons and daughters. Now, on that day 20 years ago, I had heard that prayer a hundred times, but somehow saying the words myself for the first time meant that I felt like I was hearing them for the first time. And I was just overwhelmed that, that I actually believed that. You know, I really do believe that there will be a fullness of time when all of us and all of the saints will be brought to a heavenly country and inherit eternity. And it was such a powerful spe- feeling that I just burst into tears at the altar and sort of barely limped to the end of the Eucharistic prayer. But there it was, you know, you and me and grandpa and grandma and every friend and relative we've lost to death. All the saints, all the apostles, our forefathers and foremothers in the faith, all of them, in the fullness of time, gathered together in an eternal feast and celebration. And an eternal feast and celebration that we we enact every week at this altar. Because every Sunday, every Mass is an All Saints Day. You know, we are not here alone. The communion of saints surrounds us each time we gather to break bread and share wine. About 15 years ago, my now ex-husband, who's a Lutheran pastor, was on the Rota at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City to do their midweek services. And St. John the Divine is very clear. They are the largest Gothic cathedral in Christendom and have seven seven chapels around the the high altar where they do midweek services. So there's a worshiping community at the cathedral, but it's also a lot of tourists wandering in. And, and so Jonathan was, you know, on the Rota and he was doing the noon service and sometimes there are people and sometimes there aren't. <laughs> and so he was doing the service and he went out there, he got in his vestments, went out to the chapel and no one was there. So he started the, started the service. You can do the first half of the service by yourself. And he did it, and some tourists wandered in and out, and he greeted them and talked to them. And when it got to the piece, he spoke to the last group of tourists who were there and said, oh, would you like to stay? We're about to have communion. No, thank you, they said, and wandered off. And so he was there, and he was alone. Now, we don't do private masses in the Episcopal Church or in the Lutheran Church. But he was there, and he said, well, I'm, I'm all dressed up this looks like a pretty medieval place. Why don't I do something medieval? (laughs) And so he said the Eucharist while he was physically the only person present. But when it came to the distribution of communion, he went to the altar rail. And he imagined his mother there, who died when he was 18. Body of Christ. And he imagined his um, his mentor, who had died recently, Walter Bowman, the body of Christ. He was not alone that day in that chapel. And he walked away saying, you know, that was the possibly the most meaningful moving Eucharist I've ever celebrated. Because I was with the people I miss. So today, as we come to this altar, and we break bread, and we share wine... Let us remember that we are not the only people at this altar today, and let us be conscious of all the saints who are with us in prayer and worship and feasting. Amen.